Our reading today is taken from Gospel of John and it's chapter 4, starting at verse 1. <laughs> Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus Tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? 
they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Thanks so much, Robin. And now my welcome to uh, Colin. Leave your Bibles open there. We'll have a look at that. We'll uh, just pray in a tick. A couple of things. Just to uh, remind for those who um, know the Prins, or maybe you don't, uh, our Link Missionaries, uh, there's got a newsletter at the back. Please grab it on the way out. And uh, you've already got your uh, nice fluoro green, so hard to lose, uh, update on the uh, monthly uh, prayer points from what's happening around the Trinity Network of Churches. Uh, and it is very encouraging. Over Easter, I was down at South Coast for the first time and also at Trinity Grove. And it was just incredibly uh, humbling and encouraging hearing and seeing what God was doing there. So please do keep uh, praying around that as well. There's an outline in that... Um, Light blue, if you've got it, where we're going uh, this morning. We ran out of white paper in the office, as you can see. So uh, there you go, a colourful morning. How about we uh, begin our time together uh, praying, and uh, then we'll get into what God's got here this morning. Loving Heavenly Father, we do just uh, come to you now really as beggars, uh, just really not worthy uh, of your love and mercy. And so we do pray that you would please have mercy on all of us here over these next uh, 30 minutes or so. Father, I really pray uh, that um, you would just help centre our thoughts from uh, the many uh, perhaps precious and gold-like things we we spend a fair bit of our weeks running after. But Father, you teach us that your word is more precious than the finest gold. Uh, Because through your word and by your spirit we know and can come to know just how precious you are. Please help us now to see more of your true worth, that we might know what really is worth living our lives for. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, guy who lived uh, around early 1800s, uh, he was a, a philosopher, a historian, a poet, um, a naturalist, a guy called Henry Thorey. Maybe you've read some of his, his quotes uh, this is a quote that I've thought about off and on over a number of years now, and um, now that I'm sort of, you know, a couple of years away from a, a significant zero birthday, uh, you tend to think about what it is you spend your life living for. I've got the quote here. Uh, good-looking chap, as you can see. Uh, I wanted to live deliberately, 
to front only the essential facts of life and to see if I could not learn what I had to teach and not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear. Nor did I wish to practice resignation unless it was quite necessary. I want to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life. That's what he wanted to do. I don't know whether he succeeded in doing that. I'm not sure how it all ended up for Henry. Uh, We're all at different ages and stages in our lives. Uh, Some of us feel like we've got most of the life ahead of us. Some of us perhaps not as much. Of course, uh, the day that that end does come, none of us know. So we live each day as it comes. But the question I want to ask coming out of Henry's quote there is how deliberately would you say you are currently living your life? you plan your day, your week, how deliberately are you living your life? Henry wanted to live deliberately and only front the essential facts of life. Is that how you would sum things up at the moment? If, If you were to, you know, sometime over the weekend do an exercise and have a go sort of listing the top three things that at the moment most dominate or control your choices... I wonder what, what they would be. Uh, motivational speaker Stephen Covey, he's written a few books. Uh, one that I liked was called First Things First. First Things First. Uh, one of the things that he, he talks about in the book is how sad to get to the end of your life, climbing a ladder for decades, whether it's the company ladder, the career ladder, the piece of real estate ladder, the the retirement, the the dream holiday, only to discover that the ladder you've been climbing wasn't leaning against the wall that you thought it was. That you get to the top and who or whatever you thought was there wasn't. Uh, I've called it arrival anxiety. Arrival anxiety. Uh, Don't know if it's ever happened to you, you're... You're flying home, maybe you've had a busy week interstate, maybe you're flying home from a long trip overseas. Look, you've told the relatives, you've told the friend, you know, the loved ones, that look, don't worry, I'm happy to get a taxi, don't worry about it. But sort of secretly, you're sort of hoping that you might mean enough to someone (laughs) that they bother uh, to come and meet you. And it's, it's, it's the joy you feel when you see them. And that little sort of letdown feeling of disappointment when you don't. Arrival anxiety. Who or what are you hoping will be there on arrival at the end of your life? Another uh, thinker, someone who I've read a lot more of, uh, find more helpful, a guy called John Calvin. He was a a French uh, Christian thinker. He wrote a lot about what is of ultimate worth and value and how how to find it, how to live for it. The quote I've got in your leaflets here, it's behind me. Uh, We should consider at the great end of our existence to be found numbered among the worshippers of God, uh, numbered among the gathered people of God. Okay, We should should, uh, see that as the great goal, the the highest goal uh, we can live for is to actually to be found when it counts, to be found numbered against amongst the worshippers of God. Uh, worshipping gathered people of God. 
Uh, it's a funny word. Worship means all sorts of things to people, depending on sort of who you are, maybe where you've come in from this morning. Uh, but to be a human being, I want to suggest, is to be a worshipper. It's a word that simply means giving someone or something its true worth. It's who or what you might drop everything for. It's who or what you might find hard or even impossible to say no to. It's who we're most fearful of letting down or disappointing, most anxious to please, whose approval means the most. What we worship is what we feel that we we just really couldn't live without. It's what we must have if we are to be content and happy. It's what we find ourselves cheering most vocally about or defending most vehemently. We should consider at the great end of our existence to be found numbered among the worshippers of God, to be a true God worshipper. Now, what do you think about that as an ultimate goal, an ultimate thing to be living for? See, John Calvert isn't saying everyone will be found numbered among God's worshipping people on that day. He's suggesting, though, that there is no better goal we can be giving ourselves to. Now, let's be honest. Uh, I don't know about you, but there's all sorts of things that divide my attention, that distract me, Uh, all sorts of things in my week that I enjoy doing, I look forward to doing, uh, other things I don't. In the stress and the busyness, the letdowns of each day, most of us don't give the great end of our existence a lot of thought, let's be honest. Um, you know, there's that anxiety we feel of, you know, always worried about what people think. Um, you know, you, you might be in a situation where, you know, you're at work or a family situation where you feel you're just really underappreciated, that you're not valued, um, like, like you, you, you would love to be valued. Maybe you're, you know, behind all the facade. Maybe at times, if you're honest, you actually feel desperately alone. Maybe you feel burdened, weighed down by secret things in your life that you work have worked pretty hard so far to keep secret. You don't want others to find out. Well, this all brings us to this seemingly chance meeting between Jesus and this nameless woman of Samaria that we've, we've, we've just heard read out. John's gospel has got a pretty simple uh, agenda. Uh, He's really keen to introduce us uh, to to the true and living God who sees you and me in in life. He he sees us in all our struggles. As we've already sung this morning, a God who hears those secret cries and yearnings of our hearts. A God who knows our fears and insecurities and our shame. Jesus is God. He's come personally. God himself come personally to show out the true worth of God, the true value of God once and for all so that people might come to know the true worth of God. And as we come to know the true worth of God, we'll come to know our true worth to God and how to find what's really worth living life for. Now from Midnight Encounter with a religious man called Nicodemus just a chapter earlier. Here we come to a midday encounter with an irreligious woman called... Actually, we aren't even told her name, are we? 
What do you think about that? Point one, open your Bibles as we just get the context and work out how on earth Jesus ended up at this well. As, as, we, as we read at those uh, opening six verses there, um, it's about midday. Uh, it's very, very hot. Uh, Jesus is hot, we're told. He's tired. He's thirsty. He's hungry. Uh, one of the things I love about John and his writings, he shows us just how with us Jesus is as, as God become, uh, the word become flesh. Uh, just how with us he is, that Jesus got hot, tired, thirsty, hungry. He struggled like us. He knew what it was to thirst and to hunger. But what is Jesus really thirsty and hungry for here? See, why didn't Jesus go into town with his disciples? Why does John tell us that Jesus had to go through Samaria in verse 4? You see, the way the geography works, I think we've got a map here. Have we got a map? You can sort of see Galilee, Samaria, um, and where, where, where Jacob's well is. He's had to sort of go the long way around, sort of like going to sort of the city via, you know, Mount Lofty and down around that, that, that sort of way. He's gone the long way around. Let me just give you a little bit of background before we um, get into this. I think it's really helpful. Uh, there was uh, centuries... Um, of conflict and, and rift, if you like, between Jews and Samaritans. Uh, see, way back in 722 BC, so around 700 years before Jesus turned up, uh, a nation called Assyria conquered uh, the northern tribes of Israel, including the Samaritans, and, and they sort of intermarried, okay? And so to Jews, to, to, to people who lived in Judea, to Jews... Samaritans were seen as half-breeds. And the best example I could come up with, if you're a Harry Potter fan, you know how the wizards look down on the muggles? You know the half-bloods? The whole, it's a bit like that. The Jews really had a lot of... Um, uh, they really despised uh, Samaritans. Uh, and Samaritans, in turn, despised Jews. They were despised as religious idolaters. You know, they used an edited Bible. They didn't really have the true word of God. They worshipped God not at his temple, not, not where God said to worship in Jerusalem. They worshipped God on Mount Gerizim. About 700 years before Jesus turns up, God made some pretty astounding promises through a prophet called Ezekiel. And I've got them here behind me. This is from chapter 37. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they've gone, I will make them one nation. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offences. For I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. And God makes his promises when everyone, all the nations are really giving God uh, the flick, uh, not giving him a second thought. It's astounding. But how will God do it? And when will it be? How will they know when this is all about to happen? Well, I've got another promise here from Ezekiel. My servant David will be king over them. And they will all have one shepherd. David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy. When my sanctuary is among them forever. That word sanctuary, of course, is 
a word, it's, it's, it's a tabernacle in the wilderness, it's the temple, um, it's the place where God would come and meet his people. One nation, one king, one place for people of any nation to be able to come and meet with and worship God. Now this is why Jesus is in Samaria. He's there to show this woman, he's gone out of his way to show this woman, we don't, don't even find out her name, to show his disciples and indeed to show a whole town of Samaritans that he is this promised king in the line of David who's turned up, that he's God's promised king, God's new meeting place between people and God. That there around that well and this, these scriptures, these promises are literally being fulfilled in their midst. Which brings us to the second point. Jesus and the gift he offers. Jesus and the gift that he alone offers, verses 7 to 15. As we heard, verse 7, um, that um, uh, a woman comes along, she's a Samaritan, comes to draw water, uh, and Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? Now in the original, it's only three words. It's very abrupt. It's like, give me a drink. Um, and it's just phenomenal because these, these words, in, they, they, they cross religious, ethnic, gender and moral chasms that have been there for hundreds of years. And the woman's reaction there, of course, tells the story. She just can't believe um, that this Jewish man has acknowledged her and spoken to her. She's shocked. She knew that to a Jew, she was spiritually unclean. He, he couldn't come within a stone's throw of her. If this man touched anything of hers, that he would be, he would be ritually defiled. Who is this man? Who's this Jew who, who so blatantly disregards centuries of cultural and religious tradition? Well, Jesus tells us, verse 10, he's a man with a phenomenal gift to give away. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. What is this living water? Jesus tells us, tells the woman and tells us there in verse 14. We'll pick it up from verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. A spring of water welling up to eternal life. What's Jesus offering her? Eternal life. He's offering her a place among God's people forever. Arthur Stace is a guy who wrote it more than half a million times on Sydney's pavements. Eternity. It was there when we clocked over into a new century, bursting forth, you know, eternity up on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Drink of this water, says Jesus. You'll never thirst again. He's, of course, talking metaphorically, talking about uh, those deeper yearnings of our soul, that inner being that thirsts and yearn for things that, that no water or food can quench. Uh, just, can, you, can you just imagine, I mean, have a go imagining being, even just for a day, so deeply satisfied, so content in your life, 
that you really, you just want for nothing else. That uh, you just, the reality of God fills your vision. You're so satisfied, so content. This, this woman has um, potentially heard Jesus loud and clear. Verse 15, she says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, she's missing the point, isn't she? Uh, Jesus isn't talking about some sort of mystery water so that she's never going to have to draw water again. But I think at this point, what we can acknowledge is that she's asked Jesus for the gift. If you knew the gift of God, you'd ask me for the gift. Now she's asking for the gift, even though she's asking, she thinks she's asking, what she thinks she's asking for is not actually what the gift is Jesus has come to give. Jesus has come full of grace and truth. Rather than bagging her out, he sets about giving her the gift. Giving her the gift of eternal life. What follows is Jesus literally making her into a true worshipper of God. That's what he's doing. And all she's done is she's asked. Hey, Dave, do you want to close that door, mate? Just got the fridge going on there, mate. That'd be good. It brings up to point three, Jesus and the true worshippers that he's come seeking. Jesus and the true worshippers that he's come seeking. So if, 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 if a person is going to actually um, receive this gift, come to experience and know the joy of having eternal life now, I mean, what, what do they need to know? What, well, what they need to do is they need to firstly know who they're dealing with. Uh, and, and it's interesting what Jesus does here, uh, that he lets her know that he knows all about her life, even though they've just met. See, just like Jesus gently exposed Nicodemus's religious masquerade as he's come in the middle of the night trying to do things in secret, uh, Jesus exposes uh, his, 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 the emptiness of, of his religious beliefs. Jesus now speaks the truth, uh, not to humiliate this woman, but to expose her own little masquerade that is going on here. Why does this woman come alone in the heat of the day? Well, because she's the shame of her town. The women would always come out in the cool of the morning or the evening to draw water. Uh, she is just not welcome. She is a loner. Uh, this dusty, dry loverholic. She comes alone because she really has been shunned by all of her people. Because she's be, been condemned by all of her own people. Imagine that. Have you ever experienced that? You know, you've felt... Uh, the dagger eyes, or you've just felt isolated in a workplace, or maybe at school or uni, or you've just felt everyone is against you. This is how she feels. And Jesus knows it too. Verse 16, Jesus told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true ouch don't know if you've ever had a meeting or interview and it hasn't gone quite the way you thought or you know you went in with the wrong expectations I mean she, 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 like wow uh, but the, the point of this being here I think is that Jesus knows what's behind this woman's masquerade he knows the, the core problem the core issue here and that's 
And Jesus comes into the world full of grace and truth. This is the sort of truth that Jesus comes into. Expose. He knows, he sees exactly what is behind my masquerade, my masks and yours as well. How does that make you feel? That as we sit here this morning, uh, the risen Lord Jesus there at God's right hand, the God of the universe, uh, he, he sees and knows every, everything about you and everything about me. We busy ourselves, we, we hide many things from one another, even our close loved ones. Jesus sees it all. But again, knowing stuff about another person, it's powerful stuff, isn't it? Like, you know, what you can do with knowledge about other people, you see it played out in the political arena all the time. Sometimes, sadly, you see it played out in workplaces and even in families uh, to try to sort of get the upper hand. I mean, it's just horrible when knowledge is used like that. But here is Jesus, so beautiful, full of grace. He uses his knowledge of this woman, not to condemn her, not to shun her, but to save her and to set her free. And, and it's this beautiful picture that there really is, there really is no condemnation in Jesus, this side of heaven. He didn't come into the world to condemn any human being, but to save them. What we get in Jesus is a conviction of a true state of affairs. Uh, and it's a great prayer to pray, to include that sort of a prayer in your daily prayers, you know, Lord Jesus, for this day, please will you show me the true state of affairs, of my heart, the true state of really what I'm living for. Continue to show me the truth about you and the truth about me, that I can respond appropriately. And this is why God's Saviour King has gone a long way around, why he's bothered to go to this world. This is not a chance meeting with a nameless woman here in Samaria. This is, this is very purposeful. What's the woman's response there in verse 19? Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus, where do I go to find God? Where can I go and have that sort of spiritual experience? You, you meet people who do it all the time. It's an ageless question. Where is God to be found? Jerusalem, Mecca, the Ganges, a temple. Verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. What is this time, this hour? Well, of course, as we've just rehearsed, it's, it's the time of Jesus' cross, his resurrection, uh, and coming to his Father's right hand. It's the hour when he comes. It's the hour um, when that massive temple um, curtain is torn in two with Jesus' last breath that's recorded in a couple of the Gospels. It's the hour when that great divide between God and humanity, God himself ripping that curtain in two, open access. It's, it's, it's the hour when the great divide, 
the hostilities between Jew and Gentile come down tumbling down faster than what the Berlin Wall did when they tore it down. It's the hour, it's the hour when every other nameless human being on the planet, man, woman and child, can have free access to God, can come and, and be part of a true worshipper, come and be part of the gathered people of God, just like this nameless irreligious woman. And he's also saying something else, of course, isn't he? He's been saying it for a couple of chapters in John's, John's Gospel. The hour is coming when every temple or holy place becomes redundant and obsolete because his arrival is him superseding, superseding every other meeting place on the planet. He himself is the new meeting place between people and God. And God had promised that in Ezekiel 37. He will be my sanctuary when he comes, my king. What do we read? As we heard, a time is coming and has now come when people will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. They are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. There's only one way to worship God, which is in spirit and in truth. There's only one way to become a true worshipper of God, an authentic worshipper of God, if you like. That's if God makes you into one. Have to think about that. How easy we slip into that, those sort of deceptions that somehow, you know, we contribute. We, we, we contribute to our worship, we contribute to our relationship, but here is Jesus plainly teaching that it's God who makes people into true worshippers. It's a radical thought in a world that is busy, 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 keeping rituals and rules, trying to please an imaginary God. Into the world comes Jesus to show God truly, to show the true worth of God, and to show just how much we matter to God, and to do everything, to do everything for us, so that we can be Become part of that gathered worshipping people of God. I think the flip side, some of the things that Jesus has to be saying here, is that all other worship that is not in spirit and in truth, by faith in Jesus, all other worship is counterfeit. There is no other truly spiritual person. The, the only way any human being can be pleasing to God is, is if they have become made into a true worshipper of God by faith in Jesus. And of course, this is what makes Jesus just so beautiful, what makes what he's doing here with this woman, making her into a worshipper, like giving her the gift, saying what needs to be said, so she'll come to saving faith in him as the Messiah. That's just beautiful. It's, it's glorious what is going on here. And I don't know, what I've been thinking about with this chapter, I wonder if it was this chapter that maybe prompted John Calvin to write what he wrote. We shall consider it the great end of our existence to be found numbered among the worshippers of God. Brings us to that last point in our leaflets. Jesus and the world he's been sent to save. Jesus and the world he's been sent to save. Uh, worship in spirit and in truth, uh, it shows itself in public. I think the back end of this chapter, we can see clearly that she has become a true worshipper. 
She's come to know the joy of Jesus as her saviour. This woman who come to the world, so ashamed, so much to hide. I mean, just her excitement there, verse 28 onwards. Uh, Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. And again, you can can just, we can feel her relief, her joy. I mean, it's out in the open. Um, It's like symbolically her leaving her water pot there at the well. It's symbolically of her leaving her old life behind. Um, She she runs off back to her town who hate her and have shunned her. Uh, She's the one showing all the grace. You know, why they treat me, I'm not going to tell them about Jesus. He's at the well. You just sort of imagine, I mean, that sort of, you know, how easy it would be to sort of, you know, try to get one back at all the people who've just treated her so awfully. But now joyfully meeting Jesus and discovering his grace for your life seems to be there's enough grace to cover all the grace we need to forgive people who have hurt us, all the bitterness, the contempt, whatever's gone on. Because all that matters is that they go and hear. You've got to come and hear this Jesus. You've got to come and meet this Jesus. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? I wonder if that's part of your testimony. Have you ever told another human being? You know, that, you know, oh, look, I reckon the reason you should come and consider Jesus is because, well, you know, he knows everything about me. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fascinating uh, testimony, but it's her testimony. It's the conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit who has shown her the truth of Jesus and now brought her, given her, saving faith in Jesus. Which is why I reckon we here, many of here, I know. None of us know this grace. We've tasted this grace. But we need to keep asking Jesus to help us see people and to see him how he sees them. Look look at verses 34 and 35. Um, At this point, the disciples have come back and they're just perplexed that Jesus is talking to a woman, especially a Samaritan. Um, And Jesus says, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have... A saying, it's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. And of course, open your eyes, look, there's the whole town walking out to Jesus. He's not talking about crops and food for the belly. He's talking about people who are coming out to see him because of the woman's testimony. She goes back to a town who had like us, human beings, you know, busy, 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 trying to find happiness and, you know, get through each day and find a bit of contentment and, you know, get a job, keep a job, whatever, maintain a lifestyle. You know, all great gifts from a loving creator and all, all, all worthy, you know, of our time. Or all important, a part of what it means to be human beings uh, in, a, in, in, in a community together. But Jesus says, you know, open your eyes and see what matters most. See what matters most. We've all got our own fingerprint. Uh, it's unique. We've all got our own unique web of relationships, uh, people uh, we live with, we, we work with, study with, we socialise with. Um, and I, I think a part of this, for those of us here who know the joy of this grace, the joy of, of having all your shame and sin covered over by, by Jesus' uh, grace, for those of us who know that, I think this is a prayer we've got to keep praying for ourselves. 
that we don't get suckered in. Uh, attention doesn't become divided and distracted, that we keep uh, being real uh, with ourselves and who and what we're living for. And so the question I've got to finish with is, are you a true worshipper of God? Uh, to what extent are you a true worshipper of God? What was the, the Samaritan sort of woman's her, her faith based on? What's well, there? Uh, look, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And so her sharing her story, her sharing of her own personal experience of, of God's grace to her, that was in, that's an important step in helping people uh, to sort of take notice, to slow them down long enough to maybe consider Jesus. It's important. But then they say the Samaritans come uh, and, and he stayed a couple of days. And then what do they say in verse 42? Verse 41, that um, and because of his words because of jesus words many more became believers and they said to the woman we no longer believe just because of what you said now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world and of course the way you see jesus clearly is you have to hear him you've got to hear his word for your life don't we we've got to keep asking god to help us to hear his word that's how we see jesus clearly and of course inviting people to come and see jesus we're inviting them to come and hear Jesus in the scriptures. And, you know, it's why I encourage you, you know, get along uh, to equip, get along to to the little session that Colin's running for a couple of hours on just how easy it is to sit down with another Christian uh, or a non-Christian and open up a gospel and actually read. You don't actually need to know all the answers. You really don't. It's all here for us. Well, it's how the woman's story ends. For those of us who uh, haven't honestly, um, wholeheartedly put your faith, your trust in Jesus. Of course, that's what we're, we're, I think where it's at for you this morning. It's the opportunity to actually leave here this morning, uh, to know this joy, to start living each day with the, with the absolute confidence and contentment of knowing who and what will be at the top of that ladder when you arrive there at the end of your life. Jesus will be there for everyone. Will he be there to welcome? Or I don't know you. Is it time to spend a bit more time with God and his word, uh, to call the counterfeit things that we're living for for what they are? The things where we're trying to find happiness and meaning. And actually listen to what Jesus is saying. And start living for what is ultimately worth living for. Which is with God as your father in heaven. As Jesus says in chapter 8. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me as the scriptures have said. Streams of living water will flow from within him. Streams of living water will flow from within him and just like the woman the way you receive eternal life you just need to ask you just need to ask Uh, one of the books I've been reading with growing numbers of people uh, this year is this one Wisdom in Leadership it's currently more being printed because it's sold out in Australia uh, if, if you're in any sort of leadership, I encourage you to get it. Wisdom in Leadership 
the how and why of leading the people you serve by Craig Hamilton. Uh, and the chapter 10 got me thinking about uh, parts of chapter 10 about this, this woman at the well, if you like. It's called, Don't Let What God Wants You To Do Get In The Way Of Who God Wants You To Be. That's the title of the chapter. Don't let God, uh, don't let what God wants you to do get in the way of who God wants you to be. And this is for those of us here who've already prayed a prayer like this woman, who see themselves as Christian. Um, and he, he asks the question, uh, your joy, your worth, it's a heart question. It's the deepest question you can ask. And he says, look, let's, let's be honest. Sometimes our heart is devoted to Jesus and sometimes it's not. It's divided. Sometimes our heart finds its joy in Jesus. Sometimes it finds its joy in other places. There are two major ways he reckons we need to stay vigilant, that the Bible encourages us to stay vigilant. And he uses a really helpful analogy between um, who God wants you to be and what God wants you to do. So you've got that, you know, you're out bushwalking, you come across a beautiful, fresh spring of water. Uh, that's like who God wants you to be. And then flowing out of that spring of water is a stream. The stream is fed by the spring of water. The stream is dependent on the spring of water. They're different, but they're related. And that's how we've got to think about this, who Jesus wants you to be and what Jesus wants you to do. From Proverbs 4, he says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Again, picking up on all this water language in John's Gospel. He goes on to talk about being vigilant in, in a couple of key ways. The first danger, he says, is imagining that there's this big divide. There's no relationship between who God wants you to be and what you think God wants to do with your life. There's a divide. That it doesn't actually matter what goes on in your life as long as you're seen or busy doing things for God. That moral failings, secret sins, that they don't matter and they won't have ripples, won't impact relationships or have their consequences. And he, again, sees it all the time in church, in ministry, but also just in the day to day. Um, it's the joy of turning up on Sundays to see and to serve and to love people. Um, that's just been reduced to turning up when you're on a roster or when you can squeeze it in. It's the joy of wanting to come early to church and be one of the last to leave. That's been eroded to sneaking in late and maybe leaving during the last song. There are reasons people do that, I know. Good reasons. But he just asks the questions. All of us have constant moral failings and constant secret sins. We're not perfect and we won't be perfect this side of heaven. The problem is, it's not, the problem is not having secret sins. The problem is being okay with them. Allowing them just to sit there. It's the problem when we stop repenting, stop confessing our sin and repenting and turning to God and begging for his forgiveness and to actually help us grow out and from these secret sins in our lives. He said, we've got a choice. You can either own it, confess it, repent, or God will at some point 
he'll expose he'll expose it. Um, and that, that's what loving fathers do out of the discipline of love and grace. He'll, he'll expose it. And God does this not because he's a, he's a jerk or loves shaming, sham, shaming us or embarrassing us. That's sort of his language. But because like Jesus does with the nameless Samaritan woman, he knows their secret sins. Like the sort of hidden, hidden cancer, you know, it just sort of eats away until it becomes obvious. You don't know it's there. It's a bit like this. We need God's help. We need God's word, his word and his spirit to, to show us and help us to see the truth of these things in our lives. He said it's a really dangerous place, a game to play, because it's all about the spring of water. It's all about who God wants you to be as a true worshipper, who he's making you and made you to be as a true worshipper. And like the stream flows out of the spring, so anything that we may do in God's love and service for other people, it flows out of our identity that we are saved and safe as a true worshipper. The second danger he says to be vigilant about is when what we do in our lives becomes more important than who God wants you to be. So there's not, not a divide. There's one of those greater than signs where, you, where we think the things that we do in our day are greater than who God wants me to be. And you can tell if you've got an, an issue here because just look at your relationships and how you treat people at work, at home, socially. Um, if you don't have time for them, if you're abrupt with them, if you don't, um, if, if you look at them uh, as step ladders or ways of getting things done to get you out the door, then possibly this could be an area for you to think about. Uh, and and he talks a lot about ministry. It's a really big uh, danger for us in ministry. Like, please keep praying for us and asking how it's going. Uh, how easy for Sunday to become like a job? I stopped coming here as a child of God just because I love hanging out with God's people. Because I've got to come here. You know, it's work. Such a dangerous mentality for me to get into. But for any of us. The consequences is what he calls heart atrophy. Heart atrophy. You get weary of Christian-related activities. Your affection for God and his people begins to dim. You find yourself becoming increasingly frustrated or short with people. The danger, like a piece of paper slowly being ripped in two... It can lead to ineffectiveness in Christian things and eventually forfeiting of your involvement. You just sort of gradually withdraw from ministries uh, and being involved. And it's that last danger, that it's a danger of overlap, where he says what God has called you to do is what God has called you to be. And so your whole identity is subsumed in activity, in things that you think you're doing for God, whether, whatever that is. It can be, you can do it in a paid job, study, in being a mum, even ministry. We've all been there where we think, oh, who am I? You feel like you're losing a part of yourself, your identity, being overrun. He says you can tell if you've got an issue here. Um, so when things are going really well for you in work or whatever it is, you know, that feeling of success, uh, you feel good, you feel happy, you feel content, can even lead to pride and complacency. Maybe when things are going well in life, you know, you'd, you'd drop off in Christian things. Things are not going well in what you do. You're frustrated. People are letting you down. Whatever it is can lead to despondency and despair. And you just want to walk away from it all. Now, let's be honest. Who hasn't felt those two emotions at times? Come back to this passage for those of us here who are Christian. Jesus is seeking out making this woman into a true worshipper of God. 
That's what's given her back her self-worth. That's what's reorientated her compass. That's what's sorted out her priorities. That's why we've got to keep coming back to Jesus, asking him, please, please keep making me. Keep making me into the child of God, the worshipper of God. You have made me to be and saved me to be. In the words of Henry Thoreau, I should say in the words of of Henry Thoreau, he asks, um, he wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life, only confront the essential facts of life. This woman, the essential facts of her life, she is confronted by Jesus. And friend, if you want to do what Henry wanted to do, if you really want to live deep, if you want to suck out all the marrow of life, it begins with Jesus. You've got to be real with Jesus and ask him to to help you to be real. I think John Calvin is obviously right. There is no higher aim we can all be helping each other to aim for than to be part of that gathered worshipping people of God on that day when Jesus returns. And that means chasing after people. Chasing after people who aren't here. Chasing after people who are struggling. Running after people. Helping one another together to sort of just keep inviting people to come and hear, to see this Jesus, this Jesus, so that they can know what's truly worth living for. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for Jesus and and for this chapter here. Uh, And I just want to uh, just give thanks uh, that uh, you, in showing us uh, the true worth of, of who you are in your Son, you've shown us our true worth. Father, I just just pray for each of us now that mercifully, humbly, uh, you would just help us to see and know Jesus more and more clearly for our lives, uh, in spirit and in truth, that we might know ourselves more clearly and how to respond to your grace. Please, please keep giving us uh, repentance, conviction of sin, and knowing the, the absolute joy of your healing grace that forgives and covers over all, all of those, all the sin, the stuff in public but the stuff in private. Help us, we pray, to be found among those true worshippers on that day that, that Jesus returns. Amen.